I would ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 19. Second Kings 19, this morning we are looking at verses 20 through 37. Please give your attention to God's word. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. I felled its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. I entered its farthest lodging place, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters. And I dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown." But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you. This year eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there. Or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sharezer, his son, struck him down with a sword 
and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. When I was in third grade, I lived a happy and carefree life, except during recess. I was terrorized on the playground by a huge fourth grader named Scotty. He, Scotty, was one of those kids that seems to hit puberty at age 8 instead of age 13. If you happen to be a fan of Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, the comic strip, then uh, I'm certain that Mo, the uh, bully on Calvin's playground that, that made his life miserable, was inspired by Scotty. I used to sit in class and daydream about revenge against Scotty. One of my favorite daydreams looked like this. I would be out on the playground and Scotty would come up to me again in his hulking appearance and begin laughing at me and mocking me and threatening me. And I would stand there calmly and patiently because in this daydream, my brother, who was 20 years old and six foot five and about 230 pounds, was standing right behind Scotty the whole time unbeknownst to Scotty, and he was standing there with his arms crossed and a menacing smile on his face, just waiting for the moment to squash Scotty. That was my daydream. That little fantasy helped me to survive third grade. Never happened. Never happened in reality, but just the hope, the dream that it could happen one day enabled me to endure. Many of us are facing bullies in our lives. Many of us, all of us probably to one degree or another, physical bullies or spiritual bullies. Bullies in your home, bullies in your classroom, bullies in your workplace, bullies in your neighborhood. I think lately the church of Jesus Christ in our country has felt bullied. We feel bullied by people and organizations and institutions in our culture that are frankly hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ himself. But too often when I hear the church's reaction or observe the church's reactions, too often we're cowering in fear or we're paralyzing ourselves with worry or we're publicly whining and complaining. Instead of looking to our older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands behind all of our bullies in life, instead of looking to him to save us, we look to people, or we look to organizations, or parties, or institutions with earthly power and influence. We should be looking to our older brother. He's always there. There's a phrase, as I was studying this passage of scripture this week, there was a phrase that's repeated often in scripture that kept coming back to me. One of my favorite phrases, the apple of my eye. It's a beautiful little phrase, actually a little confusing. What does it mean? What's the apple of someone's eye? Most commentators think it's referring to the pupil of the eye. It's a metaphor for the pupil of the eye. But as a spiritual metaphor, the scripture is very clear about what it means. 
If you go all the way back to the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, we find that phrase, the apple of God's eye. It's in Deuteronomy 32, where in verses 8 through 10, Moses describes the relationship between God and his people in, with whom he has just entered into covenant. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, in other words, this God that we serve, when he laid out the map of the nations sovereignly, when God, the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. We looked at this last week, how God has laid out all of history and all of geography. Everything has been laid out sovereignly by God, and it all centers around his people. His people are at the very center of his plan. But it goes beyond that to say, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And there you get a vivid display of what the apple of God's eye is. It's what his eye is focused upon. Everything else is peripheral to what the apple of God's eye is focused upon. It's where he focuses his love. It's where he focuses his passion. It's where he focuses his plan. It's where he focuses his protection. Israel, as the Old Testament people of God, was the apple of his eye. And then there's that passage we read earlier in the responsive reading. In Psalm 17, it says, it's part of a prayer teaching us how to pray. It says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. We are the apple of God's eye. We are God's people, bound to him by covenant. We are the focus of not only all of his sovereignty, not only all of his superintendence of all that happens in history and in the world, but we are the focus of his love, his adoration, his, his devotion, his commitment. As you think about Psalm 17 and that prayer for God to make his people the apple of his eye, isn't that really the essence of what Hezekiah prayed last week in the passage you looked at last week? In verses 14 to 19, Hezekiah prayed a prayer, a very simple prayer, a prayer for deliverance. Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, the wicked king of the wicked empire Assyria, had been mocking Hezekiah, mocking Israel, mocking God himself. And even though, as we saw last week, he was temporarily drawn away, he, we left off before Hezekiah's prayer basically with him saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to wipe Jerusalem off the map. Jerusalem is the last remnant, the last portion of the visible kingdom of Yahweh on earth, and I'm coming back to wipe it out of existence. And from a human perspective, Assyria had way more firepower than they needed to accomplish that purpose. And so Hezekiah gets on his face before the Lord in the temple And this is what he prays. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand. In other words, Lord, keep us as the apple of your eye. 
Love us, protect us, deliver us, save us. Yes, the king of Assyria is extremely powerful, invincible in earthly terms. But we trust in your power, your love, and your faithfulness to your promises. And so the passage we're looking at this morning is basically, this is the Lord's answer to Hezekiah's prayer of faith. And what's interesting in God's response to Hezekiah's prayer is that he doesn't address Hezekiah first. He addresses King Sennacherib, the one who had been mocking him. And he answers with a song. It's written in most translations what God's response through the prophet Isaiah is written in poetry form. A lot of prophecy was given in a poetry form with lots of metaphors and lots of poetic elements to it. Some even believe some of the prophecies were intended to be sung as a song. They're written like lyrics to a song. And so if this is a song, it's a taunting song. Matter of fact, there's a category of Old Testament prophecies called taunting songs. It's amazing how God speaks to his enemies. God is not at all tactful or delicate in dealing with his enemies. He can be very harsh. Matter of fact, even sarcastic at times in dealing with his enemies, those that are under his wrath. And the Lord begins by giving Sennacherib a little glimpse of the future, something that was going to happen very shortly. Just a little peek, just a fast forward, say this is, what you're, this is what's going to happen in a very short period of time. And it's described in verse 21. It says, she despises you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. What is that? What's he talking about? Well, he uses the daughter of Zion or the daughter of Jerusalem as a metaphor for the people, the remnant, the, the, the people in Jerusalem that were under attack. He calls them the virgins of Jerusalem because, again, we're looking in the future, and what you see are, is this image of a virgin daughter wagging her head, mocking, laughing at the king of Assyria. The idea being that you think of, of, of a young virgin woman as, as someone who is vulnerable, someone who is, would normally be in great fear behind the power of the king of Sennacherib. But after Sennacherib departs, after he retreats, she's going to be a virgin. In other words, she's going to be unviolated by the armies of Sennacherib. She's going to be untouched by the armies of Sennacherib. And not only is she going to be untouched, she's going to be mocking Sennacherib as he crawls away in defeat. It's a glimpse of the future. I remember when I was playing basketball in high school and those few occasions when we were winning at the end of the game. In the last minute or two when it became obvious that my team was going to win, the cheerleaders would start a song among the crowd. It was an old pop song, I think, from the 50s or 60s. Na 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 na. Hey hey hey. Goodbye. Do they still sing that? Is that really okay? You've heard that. It's 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 the way they serenaded the loser. It was a way of mocking the one who was about to lose the game as you sent them out the back door. That's probably in almost 30 years of ministry the only time I've ever tried to sing during a sermon. <laughs> I'm certain it'll be the last. But you get it. It's the idea. They're singing a mocking song to Sennacherib as he retreats. That's what's going to happen. But then the Lord turns to address the boasting of Sennacherib, these empty boasts that we've been looking at these last couple of weeks. And the Lord responds in verse 22, and he says, 
Whom have you mocked and reviled? Who are you talking to, Sennacherib? The Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. Now there's a message of comfort to you and me here because we're the people of God. We're the ones that are bound to God by covenant. And what the Lord is saying to Sennacherib is this. If you pick on my people, you're picking on me. If you mock my people, you're mocking me. If you attack my people, if you do violence to my people, you're doing violence to me. That's what he's saying. And it reminds me of another great verse, another apple of your eye type verse, which is in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. It's a promise to God's people Israel, and it says, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. <clears throat> That's exactly what this prayer He's saying to Hezekiah's prayer and responding to Sennacherib. He's saying, if you touch Jerusalem, you're touching me. You attack Jerusalem, you're attacking me. Remember when Saul, who would soon become Paul, was dragging Christians off to prison, some of them eventually facing martyrdom, attacking the church throughout Judea. Do you remember when the Lord knocked him off his horse and laid him out there on the road? Remember what he said to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, says, why are you persecuting me? Not my church, but why are you persecuting me? He who touches you touches the apple of the Lord's eye. And this is because we are in covenant with God. It's not because we're anything special in and of ourselves. But God chose us for himself. And he sent his son to redeem us to himself. And he bound us to himself by covenant. And with that covenant becomes promises. And the scriptures make it clear that marriage is a picture of that covenant. And that helps me to understand what's going on here. Because I'll tell you right now, if you make fun of my wife, you make fun of me. You make fun of my wife, you're making fun of me. If you hurt my wife, you're hurting me. And that's the way I'm going to take it. And that's what the covenant says. If you mock or attack Israel, if you mock or attack the church, you're attacking me. And you have to deal with me. What great comfort that is for God's people. He's standing behind anyone who opposes us. He's standing behind with his arms crossed and a menacing smile on his face, waiting for the moment to intervene, the right moment. In verses 23 and 24, the Lord quotes, he says, I've heard all of your, you know, you think that there wasn't anybody out there listening. I heard all of the things that you said. And he quotes Sennacherib's arrogant claims, his boasts, where, and he basically it comes down to, I have done this, I have done this, I have done that, I have done that. That's how all those prideful rulers of history have talked. And it's true in Sennacherib's military campaigns, he had done many impressive things from an earthly perspective. It's somewhat true here what he says, that he had been able with his armies to scale previously inaccessible mountain passes in order to complete this campaign through Judea. That he'd been able to raid the forests of Lebanon and to take for himself the coveted cedar and cypress trees. That he had been able to dig wells in arid places to provide for his armies and to establish settlements. And even a little hyperbole there at the end, 
sounds like a typical tyrant. He, said, he claimed that his armies were so great and so powerful that when they marched through riverbeds, they dried up the rivers with the soles of their feet. That's how great he thought he was, how powerful he thought he was. This is the typical anti-God state of mind that earthly rulers are so prone to. In New Testament terms, it's the anti-Christ state of mind. Look at what I have done. Look at what I have accomplished. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. He once said, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? It's the same pride that led Satan to be cast out of heaven. It's the same pride that caused Adam and Eve to grasp for what wasn't theirs and to be cast out of the garden. The message here that God is communicating to Sennacherib is not only have I heard the prayer of my son Hezekiah, not only have I heard your boasts, but as you aggressively march against Jerusalem, I am standing behind you. And I am waiting for the moment to intervene. I am the Holy One of Israel. You may have scaled great mountains, but I made the mountains. You may have cut down great trees, but I made the trees. You may have dug deep to get water, but I made the water. This is the one you're dealing with, Sennacherib, not these fake gods of the other nations. I am the Holy One of Israel. So then the Lord goes on to respond to the Sennacherib with a blast of reality from his perspective. That was Sennacherib's perspective and his, his view of his own greatness. But here is God's view of Sennacherib, the true cause of Sennacherib's success. Look at verse 25. He says, have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what I now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins. And we saw before that Isaiah had already prophesied that God was going to raise up Assyria and the king of Assyria, and that he was going to use Assyria as a means of disciplining and even judging his people. He had already told them he was going to do it. In, in Isaiah chapter 10, we saw this earlier, verses 5 through 7. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the people of my wrath, I command him to take spoil and seize plunder. But of course, the king of Assyria, although he did the will of God by all of his military successes, God's sovereign will is he oversees all of human history it wasn't in his heart to do the will of God by any stretch of the, of the imagination and that's what Isaiah chapter 10 goes on to say but he does not so intend and his heart does not so think but it is in his heart to destroy this is the God that Sennacherib was dealing with not the fake gods of the other nations the sovereign one the one who says in Isaiah chapter 46 verses 8 through 10 Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. That is the recurring theme of all biblical history, isn't it? 
that God is sovereign over all nations and all history. And empires rise and fall according to his will, according to his plan. And he uses empires to sometimes discipline his people. He uses empires sometimes to cause great suffering. But he has a good purpose behind it. A purpose that is good for his covenanted people. That is good for his plan of redemption and deliverance. As Joseph described his brother's attacks against him, he said, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. But then... God makes it clear that he knows the intentions of Sennacherib's hearts. That he knows the intentions of Sennacherib's heart. Look at verse 27. He shows that Sennacherib's intentions are fully exposed to his sight. He says, but I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. He not only knows the actions of Sennacherib, but he knows the thoughts of Sennacherib's mind and the desires of Sennacherib's heart. This is the God that he's dealing with. Kind of reminds you, doesn't it, of Psalm 139, the language there? There, King David of Israel says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now at that point, it sounds just like what he's saying to Sennacherib. But for David, the next verse says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. That's because David was a forgiven sinner. David was a redeemed man. David knew the Lord and was, had been reconciled by grace with the Lord. And so he could say, yes, Lord, you know everything about me. You know when I get up, you know when I sit down, you know when I go out, you know when I stay in, you know what I think, you know the words before I even say them. And that's comforting knowledge to me that you know me that well. But for Sennacherib, it's horrifically terrifying that the God of Israel knew him to that degree. For him... The word that we need to look at is from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, where it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows all. He sees all. Even the depths of your heart, the depths of your mind. For Sennacherib, that was horrible news. And it ends... The whole section ends with a horrific picture, really ironic picture, of Sennacherib's defeat, where the Lord says, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back by the way by which you came. What's interesting is that from what we know about the Assyrian Empire, that was a common practice, that when they conquered a city or a nation, they would take the king and they would pierce his nose with a big ring, and maybe if they defeated a few cities at one time, they'd, they'd put a big ring in each one of their nose, and then they'd string a rope through it, and then they'd lead them by the rope in a processional at the back end of their armies as they marched forth after victory. And the Lord says, as you have done, so will be done unto you. Justice will prevail. Wickedness will be punished. And that brings us to the last section. And that's where 
the shift, it's, it, it doesn't, you can't tell by looking at it in our English translation, but in many of the translations, they, it shifts from the poetic, um, um, for, the poetic setup there to prose in verse 29. And what that indicates is that there's a shift in audience. The Lord's not speaking to Sennacherib anymore, to Syria. He's talking to his people, beginning in verse 29. And there he begins to talk about the fulfillment of his promises to deliver his people. He gives them a prophecy, a sign of hope. It's a kind of an agricultural you know, uh, scenario that he lays out there. But what he's saying is that because of the Assyrian invasion, they had not been able to plant their crops. And they'd not been able to have their harvest of the crops. And so there's a, there's a famine in the land. They're struggling to eat. And so what Isaiah tells Hezekiah is for the rest of this year, first of all, you're going to continue to struggle. And you're going to have to make a living off of what grows up on its own, the volunteer plants out there that you can live off of. And then for next year, you're going to have to do the same thing. But in the third year, you're going to sow your seed. You're going to plant your crops. And you're going to harvest. Yes, the deliverance is not going to be immediate, but it's going to come. And in that third year, the Lord will restore you to your normal, prosperous life. That was a sign of what was to come. And then in verse 32, it describes a deliverance that they couldn't have possibly imagined. It says there, God tells his people, Sennacherib is not going to set foot in the city of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, there aren't even going to be any arrows that land from his troops in Jerusalem. Again, the virgin daughter of Jerusalem is going to be untouched, unattacked. Jerusalem wouldn't have to lift a finger for its own deliverance. And then in verse 35, you have one of the most astounding, miraculous military victories in the history of the world, and it's related to us in this account in the most mundane, matter-of-fact way. The one recording the history here says, that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Think about it. Let that number sink in for a second. 185,000 soldiers gone in hours. The people woke up in the morning, they went up to the city walls, they looked out, and around the city of Jerusalem there were just bodies laying all over the place. In 2 Chronicles 32, it gives a parallel account of this, and there it says that Sennacherib returned with shame of face to his own land at that point. It is interesting that we do have some ancient records from the kingdom of Assyria, the empire of Assyria. We actually have written records. And if you've ever read any of those ancient records, those kings loved to boast. It wasn't just objective history that's told in those records. It's all these long boasts. I have done this. I have done this. Just like the Lord quoted in this prayer, in this uh, prophecy. But it's interesting in the, in the written accounts, has, uh, Sennacherib is boasting about having conquered 46 Judean towns and cities in this military campaign. 46 towns and cities. But it says, the very last line in the account says, I made Hezekiah a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. And then it leaves off. There's nothing else. It doesn't say anything else about firing an arrow into Jerusalem, doesn't say anything about entering the city of Jerusalem, doesn't say anything about conquering the city of Jerusalem. That's the end of the account. 
Sennacherib selectively left off the miraculous defeat of his troops, the killing of 185,000 of his soldiers. He left it out of his account. Remember Isaiah's first message to Hezekiah back in the beginning of chapter 19. He said, the Lord tells Hezekiah, I will make Sennacherib fall by the sword in his own land. And that's exactly what happens in verse 37. It's fulfilled exactly. His two sons assassinate him with a sword. And isn't it ironic that he is struck down while worshiping his false god who couldn't protect him? In 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul talks about these great events of biblical history. And he says, these things took place as an example to us. There is a clear lesson in this for the church today. We are the people of the covenant. We are the people that God has chosen for himself. We are the people that he has united to himself, reconciled to himself through the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ, whom he has made to be the representation of the kingdom of God on earth, the church of Jesus Christ. We are the apple of his eye today. The same Holy One of Israel. We are the hapo of his eye. The sovereign, all-knowing, all-seeing God of the universe in the language of Psalm 17 encircles us and cares for us. And in the words of Romans 8, he works all things together for our good because we are the apple of his eye. Do you remember when Stephen preached the gospel to the Jewish leaders of his day? Powerfully preached the gospel. Remember how they responded? They gnashed their teeth at him and they picked up rocks to stone him. Do you remember what Stephen saw at that moment? He saw his older brother, Jesus, behind those who were about to stone him. In the language of Acts chapter 7, it says, He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He saw his risen Savior his sovereign Lord, standing behind those who were about to strike him down with rocks. If you're facing hostility or hatred or rejection or ridicule in this world, in your life, in whatever sphere the Lord has called you to serve, don't fear, don't worry, don't whine and complain. Stand in confidence in your Lord and suffer if he delays, if he tarries, if he, if he doesn't act immediately, stand there looking to the one who stands behind those who oppose you, whether they be physical opponents, physical enemies, or spiritual enemies. The Lord Jesus Christ is that older brother. He has risen from the dead. He is reigning over all things. And he is always standing unseen behind all of our enemies, ready to protect us in his time for his good purposes. What do you fear today? Do you fear a Hillary Clinton presidency? Do you fear a Donald Trump presidency? Look to Christ our risen older brother who stands firmly behind all political figures, all kings and queens, all prime ministers and presidents. He stands behind them in control of the entire situation.
Do you fear losing your job? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ, look to him standing behind your boss, your company, your employer. He's the one who controls your fate, not them. Do you fear the power of sexual sin or some other kind of addiction? Look to Jesus Christ, your older brother, standing behind all of those spiritual forces that are warring against your desires and your needs. He is the only one who has conquered those sins perfectly, completely. Are you fearing aging and death itself? Then look to Jesus Christ, your older brother, who stands behind death, having conquered death once for all, never to be touched by it again. The one offering to you eternal life, he stands behind that enemy, that great and last enemy of your life, totally in control of the situation. Do not fear it. We may not understand the purpose. Why doesn't he intervene? Why doesn't he save us? Why doesn't he pull us out of this bad situation? All we need to know is he's there. We want to ask why, but you know, and I, I always go to the Psalms to figure out how to pray to God, especially in difficult times, because so many of them were written by brothers and sisters in, in the Lord who were in very difficult times. And you never notice how they don't very often ask why. Why, O oh Lord, am I suffering like this? We asked that question, but the writers of the Psalms tended not to ask that question. What did they ask? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? Do you realize that there is such a strong statement of faith behind that statement? You're the one in control, Lord. You're the one that set the timeline. It's your plan that directs my life, and it's a good plan. I just want to know how long you're going to ask me to suffer. You're the one who's asking me to endure this. He may not answer the how long, but all you need to know is that he's there. He's standing behind the forces that are arrayed against you. He's there, and he's in control. God's timeline for our deliverance is rarely our timeline. We're always in a hurry. We always want relief when God has much higher and greater purposes in mind. Peter talked about this. He talked about those who would scoff about our hope of deliverance in 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 3, he says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. At that point, Peter reminds them that they forgot about the flood, which was a time when God did intervene in judgment and also deliverance of his people. But then he goes on in verse 8 to say, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, when the Lord looks at his plans, he thinks in terms of a thousand years being like a day and a day like a thousand years. And this just helps me so much when I ask those how long questions is, you know, the covenant promises were given to Abraham about 2,000 years before Christ came to fulfill all of them. About 2,000 years. Abraham and all of his, his family, the family of faith through history of the Old Testament, they had to wait 2,000 years for the Lord to bring about the great victory that would accomplish all of our deliverance. And now the Lord has gone 
to take his seat on the throne next to the right, on the right hand of the Father, and he said, I'm coming back. It's been about 2,000 years. We're still waiting, and we're still suffering, but we're enduring because we see that risen Christ, just like Stephen saw him. We see him standing at the right hand of the Father. He is accomplishing his purposes through our suffering often, and his purposes are always good even when we don't know what they are. Let's pray. Father, forgive us our fears. Forgive us our weak faith. Lord, help us by faith to see Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the victor over the power of death, the power of sin, the power of Satan himself. No weapon formed against him shall prosper And no weapon formed against his church will in any way thwart his purposes. Lord, thank you for the assurance of your presence with us. And thank you for the assurance of your sovereign control over all of the forces that are arrayed against us in this life. May our faith in Christ go stronger. May our peace in him increase accordingly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.